Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Atheist Alliance International Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Sylvester, a.k.a. Diogenes of Mayberry. And joining me this week is a former ex-Muslim, or I guess for an ex-Muslim, not a former ex-Muslim, uh, known as the Holy Humanist. So we have Noriah joining us. So just before we get started, I'd like to remind everybody to like and subscribe. So uh, welcome, Noriah, to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So why don't we, uh, when we get started a little bit, uh, just tell everybody about yourself and uh, who you are and, and what your channel is all about. Yeah, sure. So, um, hey everyone, um, as Jason mentioned, uh, my name is Nouria Khan. I have a YouTube channel called Holy Humanist, which I started a couple of months ago now. Um, and as Jason rightly mentioned, um, I'm an ex-Muslim. So the purpose of my channel and to kind of speak out is just to obviously share my experience and the things that I've, you know, kind of found out when I delved into religion, when I seriously looked into it, um, and to kind of highlight those issues and just reach out to as many women as possible and say, you know, this is the reality of, of what is in our scriptures and, and you know, your status um, as a human being in, in Islam. So I've just started my activism recently in English and I've just kind of branched out to starting a channel in Urdu as well. Um, so for all the Urdu Hindi speakers in, you know, the um, in the subcontinent, um, I'm going to kind of like really push to move that channel along. I haven't done that much work on it yet. But uh, just to give some context, I am a second generation British Pakistani. Um, so I was born and brought up in the UK till I was about nine. And then I spent a large portion of my life in the Middle East. So most of my teenage years um, and most of my schooling was done in Saudi Arabia and Dubai. Um, and it was only after kind of coming back to the UK, this is years after university, um, where I went through something and it kind of forced me to look into the scriptures more and like delve into religion. Um, so I did that when I got back to the UK and I was in a safe space and kind of like dealt with everything, which I'm sure we'll unpack um, a lot more in this conversation. But yeah, so it was only a couple of years ago that I really thought, okay, you know what, I want to distance myself from this ideology completely. And I realized, oh, okay, on the internet, there's a whole barrage of people that think the same way as I do. Whereas um, beforehand, kind of like I had no idea that you know, people could even leave Islam or there was a term such as ex-Muslim or if I even wanted to use it. Um, but just to have kind of like these open spaces, Twitter was really, really helpful for me. Um, and I started kind of seeing this community and then reaching out to like-minded people and thought, you know what, this is, uh, this is insane work that they're doing, trying to dismantle this ideology and kind of bring it to the forefront and put the spotlight on it and it's not hard to do in this day and age with the internet at our fingertips so yeah that's just um kind of a a weird uh back and forth background but that's just to give you some context sure okay well, i apologize i i, I pronounced your name nuria it's nuria so, yeah that's right? okay you're definitely okay. not the first Sorry. yeah <laughs> okay well, normally as we before we get started on these i always ask people to just to get their pronunciation right so i apologize that i i missed that with you so okay so no when you when you were in saudi and dubai were, were you a practicing muslim then uh yeah so basically so i come from a sunni muslim background um and my so i'd say like 
my grandparents' generation are very kind of conservative and they really, really like stick to religion and it means a lot to them and they pray five times a day and they do all, all the things they're supposed to do. And then my parents are slightly more liberal in that sense because they, I guess they kind of grew up in England and, you know, um, they went to co-ed schools and that whole thing. So, and then they lived like an expat life and they gave us that kind of life. So I was always um, practicing in the sense that I believed Islam like to be true with all my heart when I was living my entire time in the Middle East actually when I was living in Saudi Arabia and, and Dubai I was still quite young and I was growing up as a teenager there and um, before I'd actually gone to Saudi Arabia when I was nine I was wearing the hijab in the UK already and I was going to mosque classes every day after school so that religion kind of like the in the formative years the importance of religion had already like seeped in and I and I fully believed that I wasn't like I never questioned it um, and even at nine, like to be wearing a hijab when most people around me weren't. And they were actually asking me if I was sure that I really wanted to do this. And I just thought they're a bit crazy. Like, do they not want to go to heaven because this is what we're supposed to do? So um, ironically, moving to Saudi Arabia, because religion, I, I lived in a city in Jeddah, which is really only about 40, 45 minutes away from Mecca, um, if there's no traffic. So you're so close to the holy city and you can go there and you can do like, you know, the, the mini Hajj, so the mini pilgrimage, pretty much whenever you want. If you do it during the month of Ramadan, you get double the reward anyway, according to Islam. So the fact that like I had the opportunity to have that so close to home and be um, doing that kind of like what well, pe people dream about going to do this like you know once in their lifetime having saved up all their money I thought we were extremely blessed by God to have been you know located so close to the holy city but because religion is so predominant in your life like you hear the call to prayer five times a day you have to wear an abaya women and men are kind of segregated anyway um, you get all the Islamic holidays the timings during Ramadan flip in both the UAE and Saudi so religion was so like part and parcel of my like general life that I didn't feel the need to kind of like profess it you know all the time or um, so I was becoming more and more liberal in Saudi because I went to such an international school and I met people from all around the world. Like I heard about religions that I'd never heard of before, you know, these communities in Lebanon, um, these mountainous communities who like have a mixture of Islamic and Christian beliefs. I'd never heard of like these kind of different offshoots. And then I saw how even within my own school, my Shia friends would really play down the fact that they were Shia because we were living in Saudi Arabia, which doesn't look upon Shias too you know, too well. So I was seeing these little things and it was kind of making me believe more that religion is such a personal thing between me and my God. So I wasn't like a, I was never of the conviction that if I do, you know, if I make friends with a Christian or something that I'm going to burn in hell forever. I didn't think that the God I believed in was capable of that. I thought he was a lot more merciful. But the word in, in the Quran that the the word associated with God many times as well as the most gracious and most most merciful. So I think I'd kind of like hang on to that angle more. Um, so I would I would pray like I wouldn't pray five times a day, but I would pray uh, like the, the prayer on Friday, Juma, which is considered a bit more important than the regular ones. Um, and I'd fast and, you know, I believed it wholeheartedly. I had read the Quran already by then twice in Arabic. Um, and then I tried to read it a bit in English. But so I was, I, I pretty much say I was internally like a liberal Muslim, but the conviction for Islam and Allah and the message being true was always there. And the closeness to Saudi Arabia and living in a Muslim country at that time, it really kind of like, you know, it, it contributed to my experience confirming and believing fully that 
I am a part of this. This is my religion. This is the best and only true religion. Okay, and you said you were wearing the hijab by nine, but in my understanding, it's not required until a girl hits puberty. Is that correct? Um, so yeah, theoretically, yes, but um, there's a lot of references in the Islamic scripture to um, like the like the turning point in a girl and a man in, in a girl and a boy's life and, and a girl, especially because um, if you look at one of the stories of the Hadith and the Prophet's life, he actually married Aisha, his youngest wife at six years old and consummated the marriage at nine. So by nine in even back then they thought that was the age of puberty and when you can start, you should start to pray, you should start to fast and therefore you should start to cover up your body and adorn the hijab. So. Um, when I did that at nine as well, even according to the Islamic, the, the mosque classes I was going in and my own Islamic teacher, there was never any pushback, you know, there was never a, oh, it's not yet, it's it's actually once you've you've properly hit puberty and, you know, you, you started to menstruate and you've gone through that and your body's changed, there was none of that. It was like nine years old, yeah, that's a good time. The only pushback, like I said, was actually from my family who were, who were genuinely more concerned because, as I said, I was going to school in England, growing up here. I was really sporty as well. Um, so I'd, I'd like to play football. I was quite athletic. And obviously the hijab, there's like some health and safety issues with that as well. So I think that's kind of more where my um, like parental concern was coming from. Um, but nobody, according to Islamic scripture, would ever turn away a nine-year-old from wearing hijab. In Muslim countries, we see girls as young as like, you know, four years old, having the whole hijab put on them and that's like literally in in, in Pakistan you, you see celebrities who post pictures of their like almost newborn and one-year-old you know children like in the early stages and you'll still see comments saying if they're wearing a dress with like you know those frilly socks that babies wear you'll see comments of people saying um oh like Astaghfirullah, why don't you cover her up from now? It's a good way to, you know, ensure that she's pious for the rest of her life. And they start they start putting these prescriptions and this hypersexualization of girls um, from there's such a young age. Yeah, 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 yeah. literally. And uh, it's all sanctioned because there's no actual like they, they, they their concept of, of puberty and how we understand it today is just is it's just not applied in the same way so a nine-year-old wearing a hijab is absolutely fine in fact it's like nine is a specific number in islam where things change right and so there's there was nobody pressured you to do it like you said your family was concerned so they didn't force you to do it this was your your own personal choice yeah because i was going to the classes and i was like learning the quran and learning you know what the islamic uh like prescriptions are and how to be a good muslim girl at the time um, this was all part and parcel of it. So I thought if this is God's command, then yeah, why not? Like I was actually shocked, as I said, why other people weren't doing it. Okay. And you mentioned Pakistan. So I I've, I actually worked in Pakistan in 2018 and I was actually shocked there that the the openness, that there were, there were some women that weren't wearing it at all. There were some women that were wearing the hijab and there were some women that were wearing the full face covering. So Pakistan seemed to be much more tolerant of choice there from from what i observed that there were in you know even on the billboards like there's women on billboards with makeup and you know no hijab at all so it seems to be much more of a of a choice that is it's provided there were in saudi like the women don't have a choice at all so what, what was yeah. your experience yeah no completely um 
I, I agree in the sense that, like, on the surface, yeah, uh, because the, the Pakistani culture is a lot more, you know, when, when you talk about all these Islamic prescriptions, they've almost been, like, placed on Pakistan through Islam, obviously, and trying to to stay within, you know, the, the prescriptions of Islam. But the actual culture of Pakistan, um, obviously, it's a lot, inter it's, it's intertwined quite heavily with Indian culture and the Hindu culture. So some of our actual, like, um, wedding festivities as well, the ones we do prior to the actual main event, those are actually rooted purely in Hindu culture, but we, they're all colorful and that's where all the, the kind of fun stuff happens. And we still carry that on. So there is a huge like, like um, clash in, in Pakistan almost because you have the, you have all these Islamic prescriptions and that's what you're meant to be and you're meant to be covering up and you're meant to be more subdued in society. But according to Pakistani culture, like the, the Pakistani fashion and, you know, our music and the, the artists who choose to express themselves and just this whole idea of, of like beauty parlors and all of that. It's, it's trying to have that modern push. So girls there are like women and girls everywhere else, you know, that they like to dress up, they like to um, express themselves, they like to wear the latest fashion. And it's obviously not as um, restricted as Saudi Arabia, for example, where Honestly, even as a young girl, I understand like the, the, the because you have these like even if you're nine, eight years old, you need to wear an abaya, right? Regardless, even as as a young girl, like as soon as that's not even a nine year old thing. I think if a girl there is probably about yeah uh, anything after six, you're it's kind of looked down on if you're not wearing an abaya. You you stand out. So even going around shopping malls at like the young age of like. 10, 11, if this much of your ankle shows from an abaya, you'll start getting men who follow you around these malls. And there's no women around, like there's no women to be seen. You have to rely on another man and a security guard and a shop to try and, you know, get like some safety or say that you're you're being followed. And again, the only person driving you back to your house is a man because women can't drive. And you just don't see women in like the landscape of uh, the, the the horizon of society in general you don't see these posters you don't see women in ads if you do they're just the fully covered um subservient housewife type that you know the the, the image that is islam portrays but again even with pakistan like it looks all you know well and good on the surface and that, that there are you know there are less restrictions for women and there's slightly more freedom and they're trying to express their culture but if you look at a lot of like the media and the things on tv and the dramas and the movies it's all i mean it, it still represents those same values. You'll see that time and time again. It's the same. It's the same storylines. It's the same misogyny. It's the same impositions on women. It's the same honor-based violence issues, um, and these are just constantly fed to society. So there is a heavy, heavy sense of conservatism within, specifically the older generation there. Um, so I think there is always that clash. But yeah, definitely, it, it's nothing like Saudi Arabia, where you know you you barely see women. They're almost erased. From, from society itself. Right, and my, my but, friends and I- I ask you as well, sorry, Jason, because yeah. I know you you um, you worked in Pakistan, that was really interesting for me to hear. So just, yeah. a, just a quick rundown, if, if you can, of your, your experience there and how it was, because I sure. mean, obviously you're an atheist, you're, you're a free thinker, and then you go to a country which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's the Islamic Republic. And obviously, you, you, even if you're not out there speaking your mind, you know, 24-7, just like a general climate, did you feel this kind of sense of suffocation and hush-hushedness or were no, you okay? Not really. No, I, I, I didn't feel threatened at all anytime I was there. 
Um, I really enjoyed the food. Um, oh my god! Yeah, we we do have awesome food. Where were you? If you don't mind me asking, in, if you can. I was in Lahore for the first month, and then I was in Karachi for about seven or eight months. Okay. So, Did you go to so, Food Street in Lahore? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I have pictures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you didn't this, get a dodgy uh, stomach. <laughs> was it Tawa chicken? I really miss Tawa chicken. Tawa it was so chicken. Good. And I was, I remember, I was my colleagues took me out for like the street food and. The people are always concerned. Oh, it's like yeah, he lives in Thailand. He'll be fine. You know, he's eating street food. So yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. what I was wondering. Otherwise, it's usually a recipe for disaster. But oh my gosh, the food is incredible. It really yeah. is. Yeah, I miss uh, Nihari. Nihari was my favorite dish. Uh, it was just yeah, I'm, I'm craving it all the time. So oh my gosh, have you found mm. anywhere in Thailand that does? No, there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of Indian restaurants here, but. Uh, Apparently, that uh, apparently I think it's called pala in in Hindu or in the, one of the the southern Indian dialects. So it's similar dish, but just a different name. So maybe oh, I can okay. find it. So. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. And so and when it, when you don't have anything, there's always tum yang kung to go with. I love that. Mm. Oh yeah, Thai food is great. But yeah, no, yeah, my my experience was interesting. Like um, when I was in Lahore, so back in 2016, I was I went to the what is now Humanist International. I went to their okay. their Asian conference in Taipei, and I met uh, one of the one of the visitors was a Pakistani gentleman who who had come to the conference in in Taiwan, and I'd, I you know so we we hooked up on uh, Facebook and friends, and then I was in Lahore and I said hey you know hey I'm working in Lahore. I said by the way do you happen to be you know in Lahore or close by? He goes yeah I'm about an hour or two away, so he came to visit me. And he brought it. He brought a friend as well, and we went out for dinner. And well, that was the night that freedom really crystallized for me, because this was less than a year after that. Uh, there was a student, a uh, university student, that was dragged out of his dorm and beaten to death. Uh, for, Khan, yeah, yeah. And that was in sometime in, at some point in 2017. So this was like less than a year after that. And so, you know, we met at a, a Humanist International conference and we're discussing humanist issues and being an atheist and we're in a public restaurant. And of course, we're talking very quietly in hushed tones mm. so that people around us don't hear us. And I thought, and that's when freedom really came home to me that just having this discussion could either get us arrested or dragged into the street and beaten to death. And that's, you know, all these, these, these whiners, these Christian evangelicals who were whining about Christmas, oh, I can't say Merry Christmas, and my freedoms are being, you know, trampled. It's like, you don't know what freedom is, you know, like this, there are people living in parts of the world that can be executed for having a thought, so. Yeah, yeah, uh, touche. So that was like the moment where you were like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous that I'm having to speak in like hushed tones, and the consequence of this could be death just by discussing yeah, an injustice so, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, but I wasn't really hiding with anybody. Like I, the people I was associating with were all, you know, a lot of them had master's degrees, had all worked in in international banking and finance, and had you know, had worked abroad. And so the people I was associating with were all fairly worldly and and um, had been exposed. And you know, so I, I'd never hid anything from them. And it was the the response from them was actually quite interesting. That they were actually quite intrigued. 
and you know wanted to know more like oh can you tell me more like oh this is really interesting i do remember one guy a muslim who got really pissed off at me well not really pissed off but yeah. he 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 was talking we were talking about oh all this is in the quran islam invented this and islam invented that and he said something about how the 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 doomsday scenario like the the, the end times battle between god and satan is a, is a muslim thing i went no it's not he's like yes it is no it isn't i said the book of revelation which precedes islam by like 500 years tells this story and yeah. and they got it from the zoroastrians which is 2000 years earlier so don't tell me and he's like well you shouldn't say things that insult my faith and i went why not it's not against the law he's like well it should be and i went and that's the problem <laughs> and in a lot of places it is <laughs> yeah. he'd be happy to know my goodness yeah so uh, again you know like conversation like that what so you're brave because if i sense that like level of anger in it i would because a lot of them just don't know their own their own history and the fact that these like what is actually entailed in the scriptures that came before or like the stories in the quran where they've been picked up from and plagiarized from and kind of chopped and changed a little bit so they are genuinely like they're certain in their conviction and what you're saying is genuinely like hurting their deepest sentiments and thankfully these you know um he just made a comment about it like the law should be on his side but um, i mean even yesterday we saw uh, not yesterday but a few days ago now um what's happened in pakistan recently with the uh, the sri lankan sri man lankan. being yeah yeah the and he was actually like burnt alive after that and these these are normal pakistanis who do this so they've just been riled up already by like you know the 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 right wing Islamic party of that's operating in Pakistan, which was just recently um, prescribed, it was proscribed by the government, and they just kind of like made them an ally again and and struck a deal with them. But you, it just takes a few people who just think a bit differently and feel like their feelings have been hurt that extra bit more to cause havoc, cause absolute havoc, and they fully believe it's justified. And the people who carry it out are hailed as, you know, heroes. Like there was a man taking a selfie with the burning body. That is how deranged the mentality of these people are now. And, and I strongly believe obviously in countries like this where, you know, the blasphemy law is at play. It is a combination of so many things, but particularly, a lack of education, ignorance, and poverty, these three things just breed um, an extremist mindset. And then you've got verses like these, the, the, the TLP, the party that's, you know, directly responsible for um, uh, radicalizing the, the, the majority in Pakistan right now are, they've picked out some crazy obscure hadiths and they've made these like videos, almost like war propaganda, you know, with, with their chief like like speaking this hadith out loud and they've played some hardcore like music from one of these turkish series uh depicting like the ottoman conquests of um which by the way is, is not even islamic at that point but they've just taken whatever they want and they've kind of meshed it into this video and it's circulating and people are using this for inspiration and they're getting really riled up so yeah i mean just just back to it oh, it's obviously nice you know whenever you can have these conversations you can you can move the the discussion along a bit but I mean, in my discussion, in my experience, it takes that one person to get that little bit more pissed off, and and it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of one of my friends you know, when I was there was telling me that Pakistan used to be quite a tolerant place. It was only in the in the eighties with uh, Al Haq that 
he started weaponizing Islam as as a way to legitimize his regime, and that's that's when Pakistan really started radicalizing. That prior to that, it was actually quite cosmopolitan. So it's it's only been like say the last thirty forty years that it's it's become this way. So which is a bit odd that you know that the it hasn't reverted back to what it was before because you know it's been you know thirty years since he's been out of office. Yeah, well, as you said, right? I mean, because when when Ziyal had came, and then these hadood, like the the most strictest Islamic punishments, came back into law and were canonized, the problem is now that like the separation of of like politics and state and religion has become so difficult, um, and you've got so many of these fundamentalists um, who are actually in government themselves. You've got them sitting at the like top of the judiciary. So these people are literally a, a judge, which is meant to be an impartial um, uh, judge working for you know that the the public good in in a sense. Because these are literally like these are public interest cases. We were the whole country is looking to see how these you know, like in the Mashal Khan incident, how these um, perpetrators are like, tr how they're tried and how they're punished according to the law. And when you see judges at the highest levels sympathizing and, you know, uh, giving them bail and letting them off and and, and actually the, the people waiting outside the courtroom are ready with like garlands of flowers and throwing him a party, like you just see how skewed um, the problem is and how like deep rooted it is, but yeah, I don't know. Pakistan is a, it's just. Yeah. But it was the like judiciary that, that finally acquitted Asia Bibi, right? They're the ones who decided that she didn't did let her go, and then all the all the hatred that that in, incited in the, in the protests. So. Yeah, exactly. And again, there was so just so much of it is down to like international pressure as well. Um, that that's when they really, you know, have to do something. And and she was obviously granted asylum by a number of countries. She was offered asylum, anyway. But again, like it, it's it's so. I mean, there's this happens. There's Asia Baby cases every single day. They just don't make it to the mainstream. And and again, it's it's from a from. It's starting from similar shady circumstances, you know, where it could be like a tiny personal vendetta. It could be that you didn't like something that your neighbor did, and it and and not everybody is is as lucky as Asia Bibi. And the lawyers that fight for these people also are faced with like, you know, they they are taking on the entire country when they choose to defend yeah. these um, these women from minorities or anybody from a minority that's been charged with blasphemy. But yeah, it's. Um, it wasn't the, I mean, the governor of Lahore executed by his own bodyguard for defending someone in a blasphemy case? Yeah, exactly. Like a state given bodyguard that was meant to be protecting him turned on him himself so you're not you're not safe from from the people around you you know whether it's like the driver who's driving you to and from your office it, it, that that's what i'm saying the mentality now has seen like you genuinely i think the general consensus in pakistan is that um if some for, for like normal um average citizen is that if somebody talks about religion just keep your mouth shut or just walk away from the situation because that's how dangerous things are now like even if as if i was a muslim and there was another fellow muslim in front of me if i had a slight difference or a point of contention that could turn into i mean if, if the person wanted to take it far enough my life could be over so i think that the general like mo for people there is just do not bring up religion don't talk about it it's turning yeah. into a very very fascist kind of like just extreme ideological it's just breeding such ideological hatred it's it's very sad to see it going down the pan yeah
my friends are telling me that it's, it's a minority though that, that the majority of of pakistanis don't do this like it's mainly like some of the the very poor and illiterate that have been have been you know brainwashed but you know i i never encountered any hostility from anybody. like one guy actually came up and shook my hand i was walking into my hotel in lahore and this guy just walked up and shook my hand i think he was just happy to see that you know uh um what was the gora was what my 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 boss yeah. always called me. He used to call me gora. <laughs> always happy to like, see a gora <laughs> like oh, just somebody was like somebody who's not afraid to come here and so like i yeah. never encountered like no one ever exhibited any hostility towards me when i was there so i think they're just happy yeah. to see people yeah yeah no for sure like tourism to see goras they absolutely love it and like even um imran khan kind of weaponizes that because whenever there is like you know a, a vlogger or an influencer from a western background and they come and see the nice parts of pakistan and they take a video and they say i haven't been asked to pay for anything everyone here is so sweet he really pushes that propaganda it's like look our country is so good and it's so safe for tourists and goras come here but yeah you're right the um I mean, but for the average Pakistani woman, that country is not safe at all. Like, and again, you know, you're saying like, yeah, women are freer, there's posters, there's things like that. Society is, I mean, even where I um, had my house in, in Lahore, you know, girls are wearing jeans and tops. It's like you could be in London or something. They weren't even wearing the traditional dress. But having said that, you know, two alleys down, a woman in full clad like burqa would still be sexually harassed or touched up by somebody on a motorbike or a rickshaw driver or whatever the situation is like women face this every single day in pakistan so but you're right um the majority of like people in pakistan just want to live a good life they just want to be able to go to work live a fulfilled life have food on the table provide for their family have access to good education um but this spread of like this this lack of separation and this rhetoric by Imran Khan, like this, you know, reviving the state of Medina and trying to be the kind of savior of like the, the Muslim Ummah in, in the Muslim world and trying to partner up with Turkey and kind of rewrite history and show this, this, you know, proper Islamic like um, initiation of how Pakistan came about and Muslim conquest and the life of the prophet. He really has like added fuel to the fire that, you know, the, 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 this cancer of Islam that is spreading through Pakistan, he has definitely not done it any favors to kind of say, right, this is this is a separate issue and we're going to treat this separately. And I mean, a lot of people had high hopes. I had really high hopes for him. Um, maybe it was just naive, but thinking he had, you know, he had spent time in the West. He had, you know, he'd been educated at Oxford. Um, he kept talking about this new Pakistan that, you know, a new Pakistan that the youth would grow up in. But I think he's shattered a lot, a lot of people's hopes because he's just U-turned at so many levels. And now he's gotten into bed with the TLP, which is the Islamic fascist party of Pakistan. And then we saw the incident that, that we just discussed. And it's this is I, like it's just sad because it's so abhorrent and it like literally shakes you to the core. But it's not surprising which is which is the saddest thing it's just not surprising they've just fostered this hostile environment um and most people even when i read twitter like the average pakistani is like i just I, if only i could get out of here this place is just we've had things like the women's march we've had um even like protests you know that uh, my body my choice the backlash 
that women got for saying a simple phrase as my body, my choice. Don't touch me without my permission. Don't harass me. Don't impose these gender roles on me. That was deemed, all of that's deemed un-Islamic. And these are basic human rights we're talking about. So in a country like this, you just the problems are at such a grassroots level. Um, yeah, sorry, I just find it so toxic to talk about that country sometimes. I'm like, where do we begin? <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of a weird dichotomy that, you know, you have this culture where women are supposed to be covered up because they're supposed to be chaste and pure, and yet there's all this sexual harassment going on. It just, it's a weird sort of balance. So, yeah, I remember exactly. I and again, it's that. just the restrictions, right? The repressiveness yeah. as well does not help. Yes, are you saying? And I remember the, the, the gym that I went to had a pool and because like swimming is like the one, my one cardio workout. And I remember they had they had segregated times for men and women in the pool. And I'm thinking, well, how about you just join the 21st century and just learn how to coexist? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, like, I mean, sometimes this, again, is, is, is purely from a woman's perspective, because I, I mean, for me, I actually enjoyed that in when I was growing up in the Middle East. I was like, oh, this is so nice. There's like when I go to a spa, like the sauna and steam room, it's just women's only. But I only enjoyed that because I'm like, oh, I can just relax here and not worry about, you know, if there's like a creepy man in here or, you know, if I if I like just just knowing that I could chill out in peace because of the low expectations of the men that would be allowed in. But coming now now I'm in the UK I go to the gym all the time and it's absolutely fine and you just think to yourself oh my gosh is that just because you're so conditioned to think that these men are just going to behave in a certain way because that's what you've seen um and then you come here and you realize it's all fine everyone is just getting on with their swimming their jacuzzi their sauna whatever it is um there's women in bikinis there's women in burkinis there's men in shorts there's men in speedos everyone's doing okay <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit weird. So so you were you were mentioning when you were in Saudi, so like I, I was in Saudi as well. My, my dad worked there in the eighties and I went I spent some time in Jeddah. I remember when oh, he, wow. like, for him to even go to, to Mecca, he needed like special permission because he you know, he was a he was a technical guy there working with the, on the on the telecom system. Um and he needed like special permission as a non Muslim to, to even get there. So yeah, so we have a bridge. So, so like when you go, it's like the road. I'm sure your dad would have seen it, but it's like non-Muslims that way and Muslims that way towards Mecca that the road actually yeah. like separates. Yeah. So how many times did you did you get there to, to Mecca when you lived there? I went a good a good number of times. Like I couldn't even remember because it was that many. We used to go quite often. Um so we obviously we have Hajj, which is the pilgrimage that you're meant to do once in your lifetime. It's like one of the pillars of Islam, um, which happens in Mecca and Medina and you go to a few other places. But the smaller version of that is called Umrah, which you can do pretty much any time. So we did that loads. And I remember, as I was saying, if you do Umrah in the holy month of Ramadan, it's equivalent to the reward of doing Hajj. So as a, as a young child, I was like, this is brilliant. Does this mean I don't have to do hajj in my life because this is like this is the equivalent and so many people around the world apply for visas and all of this just to get to mecca during ramadan and for me i was like i can literally like wear fresh pajamas put in a buyer go do umrah and come home like this is this is absolutely brilliant so yeah i went i went a good number of times and i went with um 
my grandparents as well when they came over and for them it was more of a big deal because they didn't live in Saudi Arabia and I remember seeing like my granddad's reaction when he laid his eyes on the Kaaba for like after so long and he started tearing up and I was like oh am I supposed to cry as well because I, I meant to be feeling this like insane sense of like I don't know a spiritual union or connection to my God but I wasn't able to to cry in the same way he was but as a child I was watching him and trying to like absorb his awe and make it my own <laughs> yeah. um but yeah so and there's also um because we lived in Saudi Arabia you, you could go to like according to them what the Islamic story is but it's called ziyarat where you go and you you see the pro the places that the prophet um has like historical references to so they they took us to the the Hira cave where he apparently went was meditating in when the angel um, Gabriel came to him and where the spiders kind of made a web and that saved him from the the kafir of Me the non-believers of Mecca who were looking to track him down. So I went to all of these places and obviously this was at the time I thought, you know, Saudi is just the holy land. So I have really, really kind of like strong memories of of all of these places in Saudi Arabia. And then when I looked into Islam, I was kind of just like, oh my God, is this, there's so many questions about so many things. Um, yeah. Even like when you are in, in Mecca and you're seeing like one part of it is to kind of throw um, rocks at pillars, which represent Satan. And, you know, talking about sexual harassment as well, like walking around the Gaba in Mecca, you're a young girl and you're like, this is the holiest place. But you're hearing about people's shoes being stolen outside. Um, there's sexual harassment going on in the Gaba itself. Like there's unspoken rules, right? Like if, if your shoe slips off, definitely don't bend down to pick it up because you will just be like, people are walking around so fast, you'll be squashed, you'll be trampled, you'll be, you know, touched up. And you're in an abaya and you're, a you're, you're, you know, you're a young girl, but you do see as well, people like genuinely kind of push against you. And there's so much happening there. You feel so uncomfortable at certain times, but you feel like you can't speak up as well because you're in the house of God, you're in the holiest place. Um, and all of this stuff is still happening. So you do like, you internalize all these experiences you have as a child, um, but that that's just, it, it doesn't it doesn't stop when even in the holy city in the in the holiest city there's still theft and sexual harassment and all these things so that just exposes the hypocrisy of religion right yeah a hundred a hundred percent and even now like mm. when you look at what what saudi's doing in mecca when when i used to go that they still kind of gave more credence to that area where the Kaaba is located and the mosque is but then soon after they've kind of built this rolex tower they're knocking down all the historical sites which i kind of visited now they're all gonna go and they're putting up these like five-star hotels and they're fully commercializing it so i don't know how much they care about their own history or they're worried that the archaeology doesn't match up or you know it's not going to stand the test of time they don't allow western academics to come in and and have a gander around so it's just it's all crazy yeah you mentioned earlier in the chat about how like the, the sort of the history of Islam and you started looking into it and you mentioned the Kaaba, which according to the Quran was built by Abraham and Ishmael, even though it predated Islam, that was it was a holy site in, in the you know ancient pantheon of, of, of the Arabian uh, Arabian gods. And yet it gets reappropriated into Islam and apparently, you know, Abraham and Ishmael build it so, uh, and lots of other Judeo-Christian um, 
things that you mentioned Gabriel which is also comes from the Jewish Bible so 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 what actually started you said there was an event that happened that made you start questioning so are, are you comfortable talking about what that was yeah, yeah I'm definitely happy to touch on it um, so yeah basically when I lived in uh, Dubai after I finished uni and I kind of went back to live in the UAE as an adult um, still like a fully believing Muslim um, I got married and it kind of fell apart really fast so there was like um, there was just like emotional abuse and financial abuse and like some personality underlying personality disorders which I honestly had no clue about I wasn't even educated about so it was only like in a moment of being absolutely stumped that I googled like you know what was said to me and then I just saw articles and articles on like what this behavior is and and what it does to you and like the fact that I'm not crazy that I didn't I didn't hear this one way like I my mind is you know I'm not losing my sanity basically because they make you really kind of question your own reality so then I was like oh my days okay this is really bad and I, all these things were kind of kept from me that the true nature of of his character these potential like you know mental health issues um so when I tried to, you know, go about the UAE legal system in a normal way of kind of getting a divorce, um, essentially it kind of turned messy because he refused to give me the divorce. But that's what was the catalyst to make me look into all of this and effectively like change the course of my life. Because um, in the process of me trying to attain a divorce or even just open up a divorce from the courts itself, um, you have to go through like these like levels of count family counseling, which is really Islamic heavy as well. They keep asking you about how close you are to God and how many times a day you pray. And if you and your partner are pious and I'm trying to tell them that like this is it's it's a very like abusive relationship. I'm actually f I fear for my life, which is why I've moved back to my father's house. Um, but, you know, they keep encouraging you to meet up and go for coffee. And I was like, I genuinely like don't want to and I don't feel safe and he's kind of flipping it and saying that I'm possessed because in Islam that whole concept of like having black magic done to you or having a jinn or a devil possess you to make you not think straight he was using that angle and so when I was already like trying to prove to myself that I'm not like going crazy with him trying to say that oh I said this and I was like no you completely didn't and he was like messing with that reality then to further in front of this like Emirati Imam to say oh she's crazy and she's possessed and he's actually buying this argument and I was like I just want a divorce like how hard is that to, to fathom um so then they make you they they buy so much time to like you know let these arguments kind of play out and thinking that you'll just give up and you'll go back to your husband so when I obviously I didn't let this stuff get to me and I was kind of like you know I was going through all the motions and I was showing up and I was wearing my abaya and I was just you know nodding my head and I was like yeah I'll, I'll try and pray more whatever to help this situation but I still want that divorce um so eventually when I kind of I found a new job and I was settling into life and I was like living with my parents again um I got a call from the police and they essentially were using this divorce case and flipping it to add this ancient Sharia law, which I'd never heard of. But he just said to me, it's called Da'a in Arabic. And I was like, I, I don't know what that is. I've never heard of it. And um, he said, basically, we can, um, we, we will, if you don't go back to your husband's house or your marital home, we can arrest you and take you back there. And you're not allowed to leave the house without his permission. And obviously to my like more international brain that's had like a British education and I'd studied law at uni, I was like, how is 
how is kidnap and holding me hostage against my will ever going to be sanctioned by a judge? Like nobody would allow this. This is crazy. Um, and obviously my parents thought the same way. We just didn't think this was plausible. Like, why should you have to go back to a place where you genuinely fear for your life? Um, and even in Islam, I was like, I thought I was very much sheltered under the concept of, you know, as a woman, I've now realized in Islam, you're nothing but property. So if I wasn't my husband's, I've now gone back to my father, which is like the mehram in Islam. So your guardian. So I was like, I'm with my, I'm back with my father. I have a mehram. So how can you force me away from one guardian to another when my actual father is saying, I won't let her go back. Um, but over there you can. So this is an ancient Sharia law that I think is kind of, it's phased out in most um, countries, but some countries in the MENA region, like Egypt, namely, still kind of really hold their their legal uh, guardies and the judges really hold discussions about what the word da'a means and, and stuff. This is all derived from the Quranic verse saying, if you fear disobedience from your wife, not even if she is disobedient, but if you fear disobedience from her, then obviously, you know, you admonish her, you separate her from the bed, and then you have the right to beat her. But they've, they've made this, um, obviously, in the law, they've used the word, if you fear disobedience, the like, the, um, the recourse for that is so is, is literally we can arrest you and force you to go back because you're a disobedient wife and you need to go back to your rightful owner. Um, so when things got really, really serious in terms of like this, um, when I couldn't fight this off with a simple divorce case, that's when I really re realized that, you know, even the police here are going to stump a woman's right because they're just, they're so adamant that, you know, it, 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 the police themselves were so... I can't tell you like the experiences I had in the police station because I started just getting calls like at like 10 p.m. on a weekend. And there are certain unspoken rules in the UAE. So because I was living again in my in my father's house and I thought that, you know, they have good. You're not allowed to invade anyone's privacy. But um, my ex-husband was like stalking my house for like months and I didn't know he was stalking me going back and forth from work. So he'd found our new house and where we'd lived. He was like kind of sending people to like zoom in and take videos of me just really really weird things and i thought all of this would actually come out in court um but then when it got to the point where they actually just were trying to charge me for absolutely anything to get me to come to the police station and they the final straw was when they asked for um so and also i was sorry i was having a a birthday gathering at my house like months after all of this was happening and I had a bunch of friends over and that's when four policemen showed up to my house and they literally checked my friend's IDs and they just took one of them and said, go coming to the station with us. And then they tried to take me and I saw the four policemen and I'd studied a bit of Islamic law at university, obviously still with a Muslim mind though. And I was like, four witnesses, I know what they're trying to charge me for here. They're going to try and they'd already tried to put so many other charges on me, which I was refusing to go to the police station and hand over my passport for because they weren't serious enough for me to give my passport. So for this one, they could take my passport away and just like lock us up indefinitely. Because I've heard of cases in the UAE, in the UAE, sorry, where you know even Brits get lost in their system and you, like you need to appeal to the government to try and help you because the cases are, are that ludicrous. Um, speaking of that, there's just a case recently where a, a Brit was going to be sentenced to 25 years for having an empty bottle of CBD 
oil in his car, which didn't even belong to him, it belonged to his friend. And now they've reduced it to 10 years and his family here in the UK is pleading for the government to help. So anyway, I'd heard of a lot of these cases and I was like, I, I do not want to get in this situation. I know what these like desert prisons are like, but this is the power of if you have um, like, you know, a, a bitter ex-partner or somebody who doesn't want to give you a divorce or doesn't want to, you know, play by the rules and play by the system. If they couple up with a conniving lawyer, it's a man's world out there. So when I realized that, okay, now they're going to try and frame me for adultery um, and they're going to ask for, for me to hand over my passport, I literally called the British embassy when I had honestly given up all hope and I was like, they're not going to leave me alone until I hand it in. So I went to the station to hand it in. But at the last minute, thankfully, I made a call to the like emergency British consulate in Dubai and they were, I was, I just told them the whole thing. And I was like, look, I'm trying to file for divorce. All of this is happening in the meantime. He's been stalking me, harassing me. I've gone to the police. I've showed them evidence. They're not doing anything. In fact, it's the opposite now. And they're trying to frame me for adultery. So I just want you guys to know that I'm here and I'm at this station in case, you know, you don't hear from me. Because again, when I, when I was in there all those times before, it was just male men and they would just sit there. And honestly, they would just literally try to like flirt. They would just like sit back then another another officer would come in they'd pass me to another one I'd sit with another one for an hour like hours of my life just and nobody was so much as like writing anything I was saying you know they're like but why is this happening like you know just weird weird it was horrible like I tried to go with um like friends of mine that were guys whenever I could I tried to go with my brother or my dad whenever I could and I'd always go really respectfully and in a buyer like you know I would I'd be as respectful as possible, but it was getting to the point where it was extremely intimidating and extremely unprofessional. Um, so anyway, long story short, this angel of a human being <laughs> said to me on the phone, he was like, look, I can't give you any legal advice, but, uh, big but, that um, you know what the law can do to you if you're charged with um, something like adultery. So just literally come back to the UK right now. If you still have your passport in your hand, like don't hand it over, just get a flight back here to where you have rights. And these, cause I told him all the cases they were trying to put on me. And he's like, just come back here to where these aren't even issues. Like this is ridiculous. And I was like, okay. And I went, I literally just packed a number of things and I went straight to the airport and the police wanted to put a travel ban on me as well, because that's when they actually ask for your passport and you don't give it they can put a travel ban on you and then you're effectively held hostage in that country so i had a couple of hours to get out and i just took the first flight to baku and then from baku back to the uk and oh my god you know how you had your moment of you when you realized what freedom meant when you um were having that conversation after the Mashal khan incident this was when i realized what freedom meant when i touched back down onto like uk soil i was just like oh my god goodness what was that um so yeah essentially that that that's what happened and again even in that point going through the motions i never once um kind of like shot islam in the foot or thought this had anything to do with islam i just thought this is men who are really abusing their power and they're all on power trips and they just kind of want to deny a woman of her basic rights and they're sorry um they are weaponizing religion in order to do so um so obviously when i came back i was really really distraught it took me a couple of months to really like sit down and get to grips with what had happened um i was so traumatized with like police sirens that i even in england i thought the police like here were coming to get me so i had to go to like therapy 
um, for PTSD, which really helped because after that, then I was like, right, now I'm in England and people, when I tell them like my life story or whatever, they're clearly going to blame Islam for this. And I, because I'm still a Muslim, I need to find a way to convince myself so I can convince them that this is not what Islam mandates for women. This is just men doing, you know, just acting in, in the nastiest way possible. And that's when I started looking into it. I was like, okay, now I'm now I'm good. Now my, my mind's okay again. I've like come to terms with everything. What is the house of Ujia and where does it come from? And I'd studied Islamic law at uni. So I, I knew obviously Sharia is technically derived directly from the Quran. Like that's where most of the the law it comes from like these verses so as soon as i saw Da'az algia and it's talking all about the disobedience of a wife i went straight back to where does this notion of obedience come from and who determines what's obedient and what's not and why do we have to be obedient like at the expense of your your life or living with an abusive partner like how obedient and that's when i just started reading the quran and i i read every single english translation of the verses and that's when it that's kind of like when my world shattered <laughs> and I was like wow well at least it did you were you didn't get trapped inside it and you had the courage to leave so yeah I mean there comes a point where you know you you that there, there's only so much cognitive dissonance one can harbor you at the end of the day like you read something and you have to trust your eyes and what you're seeing and and what your mind is telling you that that means and you you have to make a decision either way it was it, I was long beyond the point of, of like clinging to the the nice rosy aspects of Islam because by then I had kind of gone down the more I, I knew there were problems with you know some elements of Islam anyway but and never with the concept of like Allah or, or in terms of like whether that truth claim I just I, I delved more into like Sufism and I kept saying I kept reading like Rumi and and all the more esoteric Islamic um, theologians and kind of profess more like God is love love is God and it's between you and your God whatever you do so I was never like strict in the sense that I, I mean I'd still like I would never eat like pork or, or all of that but I would never I wouldn't think that if somebody does one thing wrong that they're you know they're destined for for hell or that if I you know um, had gay friends that they're going to burn in hell forever. Um, I started to think that that was wrong. Like they, they can't be burned forever eternally, but deep down somewhere, I thought what the way they're living is wrong because my God says it's wrong, but God won't punish them forever. So I was already kind of like making, you know, my own rationale of how to live in the 21st century with the group of people I'm acquainted with and hold on to my beliefs. Um, so I was, I was a lot more like into the Sufi thing, but this, whole scenario and then reading the quran in english i went straight to like is islam even true is any of this true like where does this all come from who because when when i read the quran in english it just became so obvious to me um i think it was also reading it with an adult mind because i had tried to read it when i was about 15 16 on there was like there's a the night where the prophet supposedly was taken on a winged horse type animal to uh heaven jerusalem. and the furthest mosque yeah in jerusalem um so i was on that night I it was a really like holy night and the whole of the uae had a holiday so i sat with the quran and i was like today i'm really gonna get to grips with this and see what this says and i was so ready to be blown away and i think it was like some really hard weird translation of english it was almost like 
it was even harder than Shakespearean English. And I was trying to understand the Quran and I opened it and it was just like jumping and it was like threats of hell. And then I was really interested in like King Solomon and Queen Sheba's story in there and Alexander the Great. And I'd go and I'd, I'd try and validate what I read in the Quran with like a documentary. And I would just, there was no correlation. And I was like, what's going on? Is God, is God not retelling the story correctly or does God just think Alexander the Great was a Muslim because and I just I, I couldn't get it um but then like I just gave up and I just carried on you know being a being a Muslim anyway in my heart and mind but I just thought maybe the Quran is so enigmatic and so mystical and so thingy that it's just not for like a lay mind like mine to understand but then as an adult opening it up and reading it in English I literally was like how how do people read this in their native language and pray and recite this? How? Yeah. Well, you're an ex-Muslim now, but if you're still interested in, in some of the history of Islam, I would I would recommend the new Cambridge History of Islam, which has some fascinating scholarly articles. And right. one of the most fascinating points that I came across was says something like words like Quran and Surah aren't mm -hmm. Arabic. They're they're Syriac. And it says, yeah. unlocking the Syriac Christian links to Islam helps to unlock so much of what Islam is. Yeah, so. I know, because I, I think I read that as well the other day. Quran comes from Kiran or something, which is like recitation or to recite. But this is honestly, Jason, as good as you might, this is what fascinates me so much. And I think this is, this really helped me to break down like, the mainstream narrative that we have of Islam and like the bubble that they're kept in. Because once you open yourself up to seeing these connections or seeing the origins or the root words or the origin myths, where they actually come from and see you see how far back it goes. Um, even like, you know, the the um, eye for an eye thing and they're like, oh yeah, that's just a continuation of mosaic law, but it goes all the way back to the Hammurabi code. Like you just, it go every, and it just gets so interesting because these things actually dismantle the notion of Islam being like this, this beautiful thing in the seventh century that just, there was nothing like it and there will never be anything after it. You realize it's an ab, it's, it's exactly what it would be at its time. <laughs> based on everything that's come before it. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really interested. I'll definitely check that out. Because I, and I think a lot of the videos I intend to make as well have a lot, because I'm, I'm naturally just more inclined towards history. Because um, even just my own natural curiosity drove me to like read about the slave trade that we were never taught about. And that was one of my first videos on my channel when I was absolutely shocked that I was like, how does Islam claim that it's, you know, it's not racist and that it's it, it freed slaves? Like these are massive claims to make, but your sources and your history is so dark. Um, and we're never taught that at school. We're taught about the transatlantic slave trade and we're taught a lot more contemporary history. And then now again, that, that's what I'm saying. The internet is a game changer. And I think like, you know how Christianity has gone through its reformation. The internet is what's gonna push Islam to the brink because now they can't hide and they can't distort. Like they've already started changing scriptures and adding brackets and kind of sanitizing words here and there and you know, trying to make it more palatable for 21st century audience, especially a Western audience. But every like every single ex-Muslim that speaks out, or every time we shine light on the history, or we retell a story from, you know, the 
the narrative where you haven't omitted all the nasty, gory details of how the prophet, like, you know, raided the village and looted the booty and all of that. Um, you're just saying that there was a beautiful marriage at the end of it. And we're saying, no, uh, there was a genocide. The woman's brother, father, husband, everybody was killed. And she was forced to sleep with the prophet that night. How is that a, a marriage? So this just this this counter narrative that's out there now and the history and the academics that are looking into these things, even questioning the whole narrative about Mecca being a trading port um, at that time and being on any map, you know, just the, the issue with the mosque facing Petra, the issue with like the, the way the vegetation is described in the Quran, like all of these things now are just, just nicely like, you know, just popping holes in Islam everywhere, really. Yeah, yeah, the, I think it was uh, in the, silk, the book, The Silk Roads um, by Peter Frankopan. I think he's the one who he mentioned about how the mosques all used to face. He said Jerusalem. I saw one other article that said Petra as well, but Petra mm -hmm. and Jerusalem are close enough, you know, that it's, uh, it, it could probably be either or. Uh, but he said yeah. in, a, in, a, in a trying to suck up to the Quraysh in Mecca, that they, they changed the direction of prayer to there and the Kaaba to, to get the Quraysh on side. So it's, you know, I, I, I make the point repeatedly that religion is entirely political. And and the more you look at the history of things, the more you see all these political concessions and there's political motivations behind many of the stories. So it's, he like said, like the more people look at the history, the more it falls apart. So, but most people don't look at the history, but the those who are desperate to get out are, are looking at it, so. Yeah, yeah. true. Okay, well, we've, it's been about an hour that we've been chatting now, so. Anything else you want to wrap up with or we, we should maybe have another chat another time and keep going? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, definitely. I know obviously um, I spoke a lot during this session, but I would love to to host you on my channel and we can kind of go into your life experiences um, in a bit more detail and, and maybe even, you know, your own kind of like understanding of things because I, I think it's really interesting that the, the places that you've lived and the places that you've worked and the, the interactions that you've had um and clearly if there's like a specific topic you want to dive into then we can have a specific chat about that as well but yeah i think it's been a it's been a nice it's been a nice discussion and i've really enjoyed talking to you to be honest yeah you too i really it's nice to, to meet an intelligent young woman who's who's studied law and has, has been in many places as well so i wish i had met someone like you when i was in lahore so i could at least have some interesting conversations with people so of course we might have raised <laughs> yeah, some eyebrows. Yeah, I don't know how long I now. We might have raised some eyebrows, people like, why are these together, you know? So, okay, <laughs> yeah. well, thank you for coming on the show. Once again, everybody, it's uh, Nuria, uh, who is the Holy Humanist, and we'll put the links in the description so you can check out her channel. And a uh, reminder to everyone, please like and subscribe, and we'll see everybody next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, thanks for listening and don't forget we're on YouTube, so follow us on YouTube, just search for Atheist Alliance International and please subscribe and hit that notification bell. We're also on all of your favourite podcast platforms, so make sure that you follow us on there as well. See you next time.